Good morning. You are the faithful remnant. <laughs> Either that or you're the only ones not lucky enough to be on a lake this weekend. Yeah. All right. So when I first saw the lectionary readings for today, I was a bit daunted. These verses, oof. Something about Satan falling like lightning, you know? <laughs> Thankfully, my theological instincts kicked in, and I remembered that this is precisely what the lectionary, as a tool to help us encounter the Word of God, is meant to do. It's meant to jolt us, it's meant to present us with portions of Scripture that we would not naturally feel ourselves gravitating towards, to challenge us, to convict us, but in our case this morning, I think the lectionary is providing for us a word of consolation and comfort to God's wounded people. For it to do this, however, we must not stand over Scripture, expecting it to contort itself to what we want it to say. Instead, we must stand under Scripture, allowing it to challenge us, to change us, to show us where genuine hope and comfort can be found in the midst of a world that is constantly attempting to break us. This morning, I'd like for us to focus on our psalm. The psalms have been the heartbeat of the church since the very beginning, offering to the body of Christ words that it often struggled to find for itself. When groanings have been too deep for words, the psalms were there. They are a living set of prayers that are intended to weave themselves into our lives, channeling how we speak, how we think, and how our desires are transformed. This is why so much of our liturgy, I don't know if you've noticed this, including morning and evening prayer, are built upon the Psalms. If I say to you, this is a pop quiz, I am a professor, create in us clean hearts, O God, you would say, okay, sounds like some of you need to go to morning prayer. All right. And Take not your Holy Spirit from us, or something along those lines. That's Psalm 51 and how the suffrages end in morning prayer. The Psalms and the liturgical environment into which they are incorporated are meant to be our safety net when the floor gives way beneath us. They are our words when all we have are tears, anger, brokenheartedness, and grief. They teach our hearts and they recalibrate our loves. Now, maybe you've heard this already before. There is, however, another dimension of the Psalms that I think is often forgotten, a dimension I'd like to make central for us now, and it's this. Every Psalm is first and foremost a prayer of Christ on our behalf. Every Psalm is first and foremost a prayer of Christ on our behalf. The Psalms are the words of our mediator who intercedes for us. Have you ever tried to pray the Psalms and got to one that says, God, I am really innocent, so help me, and felt that a little weird praying that? If you haven't felt weird praying that, I think you got to talk to Mother Amanda for a little bit after the service. <laughs> or maybe you've gotten to a particularly intense, imprecatory Psalm about wishing one's enemies were destroyed, right? A little weird. The slight dissonance you may have felt is actually an indication that something rather more mysterious is going on. As you pray that psalm, Christ prays too. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, representing a long tradition in the church, puts it like this. Here's what he says. A psalm that we cannot utter as a prayer that makes us falter and horrifies us is a hint to us that here someone else is praying, not we. That the one who is here protesting his innocence, who is invoking God's judgment, who has come to such infinite depths of suffering, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. He it is who is praying here. Not only here, but in the whole Psalter. That's Bonhoeffer. That is, not, that is the not-so-subtle shift I want to invite you into today, to see Christ as the one praying on our behalf in Psalm 30. Christ, right now, is praying Psalm 30 for our church at the right hand of the Father. There are some pretty substantial theological reasons why this is the case, and they have to do with the fact that we are united to Christ Uh, United like a head is to its body. Scripture is filled with images for the church, the predominant one being that the church is a body whose head is Christ. Now, whatever you do to a body will be felt by its head, right? If you stub your toe, receptors send a signal through your nerves up to your brain where your pain is registered, right? I'm pretty sure that's what happens. I'm a doctor, but not that kind of doctor, right? In the same way, Scripture portrays our relationship to Christ to be so intimate that if something happens to us, it happens to Christ. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Asked Christ of Saul in Acts 9.4, even though it was the disciples who were being persecuted. Or again, in one of the most important verses for Christian ethics, Jesus says that anytime we care for the most vulnerable of the world, the least of these, the hungry, the immigrant, the cold, the thirsty, we render such service to him. Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the, the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me, Matthew twenty-five forty. Even in our gospel reading for today, we see a strong connection between what is done to God's people and what is done to Jesus. Verse 16 says, whoever listens to you listens to me, and whoever rejects you rejects me. And whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. Even here, we see an organic connection between A, Christ's body, the church, B, the head, Christ, and C, even the Father, the one who sent. Harm a member of the church, and the implications are huge. As an aside, I should mention that this is a very good reason for why we should be careful of one another. Passages like 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 speak of how when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers leading us to weep with those who weep. If one of us is hurt, we are all hurt. We are one body, a body that needs to take care of itself, especially when it has been wounded. Very often, the church, broadly speaking, acts like a body with a debilitating autoimmune disease harming itself. So we are united to Christ, like a body is to a head. And that means that the head can speak for us. That's what we have in the Psalms. Our head is praying for us. But what does Christ pray for here in Psalm 30? Here's how I would put it. Christ prays the pattern of his life, a pattern that we follow. Christ prays the pattern of his life, pattern that we follow. Psalm 30 is a psalm of death and resurrection, of being brought down to death and then being lifted up. That's where Christ has gone. As we will confess in our creed in just a moment, for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. 
in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where Christ has gone. But where a head goes, the body goes too. It'd be weird if that wasn't the case, right? So the pattern of Christ's life is the pattern of our lives too. A pattern where we are brought out of death and into marvelous resurrection life. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts, describes this pattern in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 12, which struck me as a really good summary verse for what I think I'm trying to communicate this morning. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 12 says this, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And here's the, the key part. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. We carry in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. You know, see the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus in our bodies all the time. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be visible in the mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. That's 2 Corinthians 4. Because Jesus has gone from death to life, we too shall go from death. Life. At present, however, we know death, a word that serves as a constant reminder that life as we know it is not life as it ought to be. Verse 1 of the psalm describes enemies who long to triumph over us. We all have these enemies, those things that in our lives that break us. Not necessarily an Obi Wan Anakin situation, of course. These can be various different types of enemies. I mean, maybe you have a Sith Lord after you. I don't know. Um, you tell what we're watching <laughs> in our house these days. These can be people, relationships, things, events, anxieties, fears, doubts, harms, traumas, difficulties in mental health, all of it. And maybe it is helpful to hear someone say from a pulpit this morning life can be really crushing. And we have all been crushed. And that is a horrible thing to go through. <laughs> as, uh, as people like to say, nobody makes it out of life alive, right? Um, we are... <laughs> something my... <laughs> my <laughs> script. We are, as the gospel reading states, sent out like lambs in the midst of wolves. One of my favorite bands, the Avet Brothers describes the brokenness of, life, of this life like this in their song, True Sadness, they say. I hate to say it, but the way it seems is that no one is fine. Take the time to peel a few layers and you will find true sadness. And while we all have these enemies, as Christians, we also know from passages like 1 Corinthians 15, 26, that there is one governing enemy, the source of all other enemies, and that enemy is death. It is the last enemy to be defeated. Though it includes the end of life, death understood theologically is a malady that encompasses the full range of corruption introduced to humanity as a consequence of sin. That's what we see in verse 3 of our psalm. We are in the conditions of death and need to be brought out of it. This is why Christ has entered death himself to release us from, the capti from our captivity to death. Right now, says verse 6, we weep. We weep and weep because we live in a world consumed by death. Our psalm gives further insight into this malady and the importance of acknowledging the true sorrow of this world. This is what verses 7 and 8 say. 
While I felt secure, I said, I shall never be disturbed. You, Lord, with your favor, made me as strong as the mountains. Then you hid your face, and I was filled with fear. There are some out there, Christians even, who really seem fine from the outside. They seem to have everything together, and sadness never seems to touch them. They feel, says our psalm, secure. And maybe that's true. It's not true of me. We don't all suffer in the same way, and that's okay. The danger here, however, is an attitude that because our lives is not as bad as others, we must have some special favor from God. This is a mentality that fosters a special kind of pride, a pride that ignores the brutality of this life, even if it is not being personally experienced. It forsakes compassion for comfort and avoids solidarity with the least of these. Yet Paul would have us never boast of anything except the, Lord, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world is crucified to us and we to the world. Galatians 6.14 says, If you are in the body of Christ, the way of the cross requires suffering with others. For we are united to the one who has been crucified for us. We partake in his suffering, and we partake in one another's suffering. One body, right? It's felt by all. We have a special duty, therefore, not to feel secure when, we cannot, when others cannot enjoy such a security. When we hear that many of our community have been hurt, we must hurt with them. Their hurt is our hurt because we are one body. So here we are. We weep during the night. We exist in the shadow of death, right? feels like every time Doville comes up to preach, he's talking about death. But there is a morning coming. There is a morning coming. Psalm 3010, it talks about how there is no profit in our blood, no enduring benefit if we go down into the pit. We would be getting the death we had deserved. But recall that we are not praying this alone. Who prays this for us? Christ. There is one whose blood does profit us. One who has gone down into the pit and returned. One who has taken death into himself and defeated it. Christ, through his blood, has provided that atonement that defeats death. Because of that, he can have mercy on us. He can take our wailing and transform it into dancing, as verse 12 says. Because Christ has gone down into death and has come back victorious, because of his resurrection, we too know that death will not have the final word. So you know i got to get Augustine in here somehow, right? Otherwise, Joel will be disappointed. This morning, you have the, the rich privilege of two Augustine quotes in a row, all right? Buckle up, all right? So when Augustine preached a sermon on this psalm, he told his brokenhearted congregation that we weep only until that morning of resurrection gladness looking to the joy which blossomed in advance in the early morning resurrection of our Lord. Then later he said, the things that are oppressing you pass away, and the one who, whom you hold out for will come. He will wipe away the sweat and dry your tears, and you will weep no longer. But for the present, we must groan amid our tribulation. So though there is no profit in our blood, there is endless profit in the blood of the one who is both God and human, the one who has defeated death, and his resurrection secures ours. And this makes a difference. If we are united to the one who has defeated death, we know that we too will rise up. You brought me up, O Lord, from the death, from 
the, de- the dead. You restored my life as I was going down to the grave. You restored me to health. Joy comes in the morning. You have put off my sackcloth or death and clothed me with joy. These are all in our psalm. Because Christ has gone from death to resurrection life, we will too. He paved the way for us to follow. But it is important to highlight here that the removal of death cannot be accomplished by anything that we do. No one can fix their own death. Death is not but a scratch or just a flesh wound, as Monty Python taught us. Is that a reference that people get anymore? I don't know. All right. Death no longer has a sting, but it is still a present reality, and its defeat occurs only when we are resurrected in the future. That is the morning of verse 6. We also get a beautiful image of what that future relief looks like in Isaiah 66, our Old Testament reading. We're called into the future Jerusalem, where all of God's purposes are ultimately and permanently fulfilled. And in that place, we are consoled like an infant who nurses at his or her mother's breast. And and the one who is nursing us here is God, who is described to us as our mother who loves to comfort us. All right. Now, theology and gender is like my thing. And I'd say, it took me a lot of self-control for me not to say more about this in the sermon. <laughs> if you want to know what I think about calling God mother, I'm happy to chat after the service, but I'm not, I'm not going to get sidetracked with that now. For now, let's just note that Scripture does depict God as a mother, and that it, this is meant to be a source of comfort to us. So focus on the comfort. We can talk about the mother side later. God promises that there will be a day when our weeping will cease. And it is kind of like how the weeping of a child ceases when the child is comforted by his or her mother. That's what God is like to us. The fear will be replaced by protection. The famishment will be replaced by nourishment. The sadness will be replaced by joy. Death will be replaced by life. Now, there is a detail in the Isaiah text that is worth bringing to the fore, and that's verse 14. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bodies shall flourish like the grass, which is not in the version that you have in your bulletin. That's the RSV. Our resurrection is a bodily resurrection, just like Christ's was. Notice that the Isaiah passage pinpoints our bodies as the thing that will flourish when we finally rejoice. This is key. When we suffer in this life, we suffer in a bodily way. The effects of trauma can reverberate throughout the entirety of one's body, often with ramifications that stretch long into the future. So when Isaiah is promising us a type of flourishing that extends even to the bodily effects of trauma, he is promising us a resurrection that is comprehensive. When we are resurrected, our wounds will be healed whatever the form they have taken. Your bodies will flourish, even if they have carried decades of trauma and grief. You will be restored to health, says verse 2 of the psalm. And this health is not a temporary health that may come or go. I've just gotten over a cold, or I thought I was going to get over a cold when I was writing the sermon. But I I have no guarantee that I'll never catch a cold again. And with a three-year-old, it's highly unlikely. But the health that we will one day know is the kind of health that will endure forever. We will be perfect like Christ is perfect, the health of the head dispersing throughout all of the body. 
But maybe this is a little disappointing. You're suffering now. And the restoration that we are promised belongs to a resurrection that, for the time being, is a bit out of reach. It's in the future. In fact, what I'm saying is that death will be our companion until we are raised again. And we can expect life to continue to be difficult. The corruption of sin will still taint our relationships, our endeavors, even our church. So what can we do? Just sit in apathetic dejection? Of course not. The key here is to remember that no matter how gloomy the death surrounding us gets, it can never eclipse the death and resurrection of Christ. That this death that continues to engulf us has been defeated. And Christ continues to be our shelter in the storm and anchor for our soul. That means that we can huddle together as a church, weathering the storm whose power is slowly waning. But there's more that we can do too. We can cultivate practices of resistance to death. We can cultivate practices of resistance to death. But what resists the death that reigns in this world? It's not what you think. Here too, we must consider our union with Christ. When Paul considers what imitates Christ, he often jumps to things like humility, patience, unity, compassion, Kindness, gentleness, love, and things like that. We resist death when we cultivate these things, testifying by these virtues that a day will come when we will no longer weep. When we give voice to the voiceless, we resist death. When we show extraordinary compassion, we resist death. When we listen well to one another, we resist death. When we turn away from power and pride to Christ's cruciform strength and weakness, we resist death. There's an irony here. Those who are weak resist death. We shouldn't be mistaken to think that we can cultivate these things ourselves. As Galatians testified to us last week, these are fruits that blossom in virtue of the fact that we are united to the one who is already these things for us. So how can we resist death in this difficult season for our church? How can we heal together as God turns our wailing into dancing? How can we see the face of Christ in our church neighbor? weeping with them when they weep, caring for the broken. seems to me that union with Christ requires no less of us than to do those things. And we can be sure that as we struggle in doing them, Christ will have been praying for us the entire time. Amen.